Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Last week we saw Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles meeting to take counsel in Jerusalem. After the council, Paul and Barnabas returned to their home base in Syrian Antioch. Now we learned in Sunday school this morning that while he was there in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement and they chose to go their separate ways. Paul now takes a man named Silas as his co-worker and Paul and Silas depart for Paul's second missionary journey. It would appear that they also pick up Luke along the way, who is the author of Acts, and we think this because the narration shifts at this point from second to third person, and now the story is told from the perspective of we and us. So we have Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy on this second journey through Asia Minor. Paul receives, uh, when they're in Asia Minor, Paul receives a vision, and in the vision, a man stands before him, urging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul heeds that vision and he travels west to Macedonia, which would correspond to the present-day Balkans and northern Greece. Now Paul comes eventually to the chief city of Macedonia, Philippi. It's a Roman colony that was established there about 400 years before this. And there in Philippi, Paul meets a wealthy merchant woman named Lydia. And Lydia and her household come to follow King Jesus, and then Lydia opens her home to host Paul and his friends. And now we pick up the story as Paul and the other missionaries continue to preach the gospel in the city of Philippi. So we're in Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, isn't it true what this girl was saying? Paul and Silas do serve the Most High God. and They do proclaim a message of deliverance. But something about this girl's proclamation began to annoy Paul. Perhaps he felt this girl was mocking God. Or perhaps he felt she was distracting people. Luke doesn't really explain what the problem was. What Luke does tell us is that when Paul commanded the Spirit to come out in the name of Jesus, the Spirit obeyed immediately. And this shows us that the name of Jesus still holds sway over the spiritual powers of the world. Luke also wants us to see in this the same theme he has been showing us over and over again in this book, that Jesus is reliving his life in the life of his church. Casting out evil spirits, the sort of work that Jesus did, isn't it? We read an example in our gospel reading for this morning. Even when the spirits were proclaiming the truth that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Christ, even then, Jesus would rebuke those spirits and silence them. 
Because that wasn't the appointed time. That wasn't the appointed way to proclaim the good news. And so we see the same thing happening with Paul. He wants the Philippians to know the God that I serve is not any of the gods you associate with this girl's past prophecies. The knowledge that I am proclaiming to you, it's not discovered through divination or through demon-oppressed girls prattling riddles for, for a fee. Paul is saying, my message is the very word of God, and it's proclaimed freely by ordinary men who are simply witnesses to what they themselves have seen and heard and even touched. So we see in Paul's work here a continuation of the ministry and preaching of Jesus. Jesus is reliving his life in the life of his church. This Philippian girl was imprisoned by an evil spirit. Jesus has freed her through his servant Paul. And you would think this would be good news to the people of this community. But you have to realize that the people of the ancient world had grown accustomed to their false gods, still very much themselves under oppressive power. And in particular, this slave girl's owners, they'd been making a profit from her pain for many years. So in their eyes, Paul has just bankrupt their business with a word, and they don't like it. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. This, too, is an echo of the story of Jesus. You might remember how he cast out a legion of demons from a man and sent them into a herd of pigs. The pigs rushed down a steep bank and into the sea, and they all drowned. Did the people of that place rejoice that this prisoner had been freed? Did they count the loss of pigs as cheap compared to the freeing of a human soul from prison? No. They begged Jesus to leave their country and not trouble them any longer. It's the same way here in Philippi. The slave girl's owners care nothing for the miracle Paul has performed. They care nothing for the freeing of this girl. All they know is that their wealth has been threatened and they want retribution. Now this won't be the last time that the gospel threatens the purses of pagan profiteers. We'll see in Ephesus that Paul's teaching about the one true God causes an uproar among the idol makers when he impacts their business. Here in Philippi, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, what customs are these men talking about? Are these trumped-up charges, or is there something to this? Well, we do know what Paul and the other apostles have been preaching, and it is simply this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. And remember, that means Jesus is king. That means he's the sovereign ruler over all people. Now, that is one thing that Romans cannot tolerate. To claim Jesus is Lord would mean that Caesar is not. 
Perhaps that's how these slave owners thought that they could entrap Paul and Silas by playing to the Roman pride of the Philippians. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So we have Saul, who once ravaged the church, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. He himself is now dragged off and put in prison for the sake of the gospel. He suffers once again for the name of Jesus, which he once cursed. We also meet here the Philippian jailer. He's ordered to keep Paul and Silas safely, and it was common in the ancient world for a jailer to be executed if he allowed his prisoners to escape. So this jailer takes no chances. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this is maximum security for these treasonous street preachers. Now, of course, all of this echoes the story of Christ as well. For his ministry of casting out demons and proclaiming the kingdom, Jesus was dragged before rulers, and he was falsely accused, and he too was stripped of his garments, and he too was beaten. So Paul walks in the footprints of Christ. Just as Jesus had said to his disciples, Luke 21, 12, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. We see it fulfilled right here in Acts. Of course, Jesus Christ was not spared his life. He was crucified and buried in the stone tomb. Paul and Silas, on the other hand, are not killed, but this is a death-like experience for them. They are symbolically entombed. They are shut up deep inside the prison, in the darkness, feet fastened in stocks so that they cannot move. They are in a death-like state. They are buried like Christ. Will they be resurrected? Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them, bruised and bleeding bound and buried, yet Paul and Silas are singing. And in their songs, they are still bearing witness to others. What were they singing? I think we can safely assume it was the same songs the Christians have been singing all throughout the book of Acts. They are singing the psalms, the hymns these faithful Jews had sung their whole lives and which now took on new meaning for them in Christ, As our Old Testament reading for today demonstrated, the Psalter is filled with jailhouse songs. Would that we had the Psalms hidden in our hearts so that we too might sing them in the darkness of our own sleepless nights. The Lord hears their song in the night, verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, in the scriptures, the the shaking of the earth usually indicates an appearance of the Lord. And this goes back to Exodus, when at Mount Sinai, the mountain shook as the glory cloud of the Lord descended upon it. 
And that symbolism continues to echo down in the prophets. This is then fulfilled in Christ, whose crucifixion and resurrection were also accompanied by earthquakes. And we saw the earth shake back in chapter 4 of Acts, after Peter and John were released from their arrest, not unlike our situation here. So the earth shakes, the foundations shake. What we have here is a sign that the Lord has come, that he's descended to deliver his people, to bring about an exodus, as in all those other times, to shake the foundations of worldly power and deliver his people from death. This is not good news for everyone, though. Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He knows his life is forfeit if he fails at his job. In despair, he thinks it better to end things quickly than face the brutal punishment that he knows awaits. Verse 25, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. It's striking to me how similar this scene is to one that we find in Matthew 28, Matthew 28, 1 through 6. Now, after the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he was risen, as he said. An earthquake, guards trembling with deathly fear, And the words of relief, do not fear. There are enough similarities that I think we're supposed to see this jailbreak as a type of symbolic resurrection of Paul and Silas. We've spoken much of how Christ is reliving his life in the life of his church. He is also reliving his passion in the passion of his church, in their persecution and suffering. But Christ is also reliving his resurrection through them as well. Paul would later write, Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we see this symbolically illustrated in this morning's passage. This is our great hope too, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, if we follow Christ, we will all suffer as he did. But if we follow Christ, we know that we will also share in his glorious resurrection and his eternal kingdom. This is why we press on. This is our hope. The jailer picks himself up off the floor, verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I think we should ask here, saved from what? This jailer wouldn't know necessarily anything about the Christian teaching on heaven or hell at this point. He might be thinking of what's going to happen to him when his superiors find out the prisoners have been freed. How can I be saved from punishment? 
Or he may begin to realize that Paul and Silas are indeed representatives of some mighty deity. Maybe he's afraid their God will hold him accountable for accosting his servants. Either way, the jailer knows he needs to be delivered. He needs to be saved. And he believes Paul and Silas can help. Verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If the jailer's understanding of salvation is rather limited at this point, Paul and Silas's is not. The, the salvation that they preach is release. It is freedom, not only from prison walls, but from the imprisonment of sin and death, which holds all humanity in captivity. Salvation is not only release from that prison, it is also entrance. Salvation is entrance into the kingdom of Jesus, into true human flourishing, both in this life and the life to come. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus, or you could translate it, trust the Lord Jesus. We always have to remind ourselves of this, I think. Believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, it, it does not simply mean believing that He exists or believing that He is Lord. Even evil spirits know that. We saw this earlier. Believing in the Lord Jesus means actively trusting Jesus. Trusting that He will do what He says He will do. Trusting fully in Him to save us from sin and death. And it also means being faithful to Him. It means being faithful to Him. Swearing your loyalty to Him as King. Which means bringing your life under His rule, following Him, obeying Him, and participating in the work of His kingdom. All of that is included in the phrase, believe in the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul and Silas are calling this jailer to do. To trust and follow and be faithful to King Jesus. And the salvation that they offer extends beyond the jailer's request too. He asked, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? But Paul and Silas tell him that if he puts his trust in King Jesus, his whole household will be saved. This idea really shouldn't be new to us. It's the, it's the message the apostles have been preaching throughout this book. Peter at the day of Pentecost says, the promise is for you and for your children. The angels promise to Cornelius, send for Peter, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Earlier in this chapter of Acts, we see the salvation of Lydia and her household. And this is how God has always worked, right? He brings Noah and his household safely through the flood. He brings Abraham and his household into the covenant. Under the headship of Moses, he brings the households of Israel safely through the Red Sea. When the head of the household bows the knee to King Jesus, the whole household comes under the rule of the kingdom as well. Verse 32. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The church father John Chrysostom notes of the jailer, he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from his sin. Verse 34, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Consider where this jailer was only a few hours ago. He was so overcome with dread, so fearful of his superiors that he nearly took his own life. We know now that he would have left his children without a father, his household without a provider. But now, here he is feasting. He is rejoicing to come under the rule of a new and a benevolent king. And he is sharing in the joy of that blessing with his whole household. He too has experienced a kind of death and resurrection this night. Christ is reliving his life in the life of this Philippian jailer as well. And this is what happens when you become a Christian. The Lord starts making your life reflect His. As we come to a close, I'd like to ask, what do we do with this theme that we see over and over again in Acts of Jesus reliving His life in the life of His church? Probably every one of our sermons in Acts have focused on this in one way or another, all these remarkable parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of his apostles. Why did God move history this way? Why did the Spirit inspire Luke to point it out? I think it's partly because we might be tempted to think that Jesus' earthly ministry ended with the ascension. We might be tempted to think that now we're just in a waiting game between his ascension and his second coming. We just have to hold out long enough. That's not what's going on in the book of Acts. Acts shows us that Jesus has not put his kingdom on pause. He has not stopped doing the kinds of things that he was doing when he was physically present on earth. Jesus still heals. Jesus still breaks bonds. Jesus still speaks truth. Jesus still brings life from the dead. The only thing that has changed is whose hands touch, whose feet walk, whose lips speak. It's still Jesus doing the same work, but he does this through you and me, empowered by his spirit, the breath of his life. The lives of the first Christians looked a lot like the life of Jesus. Our lives are to bear that same resemblance. And that's why we come here week after week to saturate ourselves in the story of Jesus. To hear it read and preached. To confess it in the creeds. To sing it in our songs. To taste it in the supper. It's why we celebrate the church year. Why we take the calendar of Christ's life and transpose it onto our own. Walking through his birth and death and resurrection together year after year. All these things are ways that we soak ourselves 
in the story of Christ so that more and more our lives start to look like his. So that he can relive his life in the life of this church. This is why we pursue all opportunities to bring healing, to bear others' burdens, to teach the truth in our community. We do it because it is what Christ would do. This is how we believe, how we trust Jesus and welcome his reign over us. And by his grace, we are saved. Let's pray. Lord, we want your story to echo in ours. We want people to see your life lived in us. Work through us to break oppression, to free captives who are enslaved by evil. Work through us to bring justice. Work through us to bring hope to those in despair, to those in such despair they consider taking their own life. May we be the voice that calls them back to the joyful feast of life in your kingdom. Live your life in us, Jesus. We are yours, for you have saved us and brought us out of the tomb with you into your kingdom. Amen. We come now to our time of offering. Tithes and offerings may be given electronically using the methods on the screen, or they may be placed in the collection box by the sound booth as you leave today. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. Would you please rise? We'll sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given your very self to us in the person of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. United with him, we now give ourselves to you through our tithes and offerings, through the fruit of our labors and the work of our hands, that in Christ you may use them to advance his kingdom, both here in our midst and in our community and throughout the world. We ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated.